So I was struck by um, some of the various questions, various points in the retreat had to do with the question of self and Buddhist teachings of anatta or not-self. And it's quite a challenge for many of us here in the West to understand and perplexes many people. And my sense of uh, having studied the uh, discourses of the Buddha is that he was actually trying to make it uh, quite easy for us rather than to complicate us poor Westerners. And um, so I would like to uh, make an attempt in conveying the simplicity, if it's possible, or if there's some risk, I'll just make it more complicated. But I will make an effort. The intention is to try to make it simple and to be helpful. There's a... um, It seems that when naturalists go to, say, out to the plains of Africa, and they want to um, take photographs of all the wild animals, they would be foolish to walk all over the plains looking for the different animals and trying to find them and take pictures of them. What's much wiser is to uh, sit by the watering holes. And then when you sit by the watering hole, all the animals come to you. And then you can get all the pictures you want, because all animals eventually come to water holes, supposedly. So that's one way to make nature photography a lot easier. The the practice of mindfulness is like that. It's like sitting at the watering hole and letting all things come to you. Whatever you need to to know, whatever you need to have insight into, will come in its own good time. Many of us go out searching, and sometimes it's very difficult to find what we search for. Sometimes what we search for we think is very important turns out to be not very important. And sometimes what we search for simply doesn't exist. And we spend lifetimes in the plains looking. After the Buddha was awakened, he decided to go out and teach what he had discovered when he kind of kind of surveyed the world and concluded that there were a few people out there who had but little dust in front of their eyes and would be able to hear what he had to teach. And so when he set out to teach the first time, he, set, he went to looking for his five companions uh, who had been companions with him when he was engaged in his ascetic practice. For some six years, the Buddha was one of the foremost ascetics of India, took asceticism right to the edge of death, and then decided that that kind of self-denial was not a path to freedom. Death was not a solution. And he then started eating a little bit more food than he had been, not much more, but he had the milk porridge. And his five ascetic friends were disgusted with the soft life the Buddha had taken up. (laughs) And, um, And so they rejected him. But the Buddha knew these five companions had been engaged in many years of spiritual practice, very serious intent. And to, be, to be involved in the ascetic for many years uh, probably meant a very strong intention, dedication, and probably a lot of personal purification as part of that process. So the Buddha thought, oh, these people have but little dust in front of their eyes. I'll go to them. And so he went to them. He set out and walked across the plains of India. And he came to um, the deer park in Varanasi. And when they saw him, the five friends saw the Buddha, they said to themselves, they saw him coming up, walking in distance, they said to themselves, let's not give him any heed. Let's just sit here, and that's the slacker. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he doesn't, that doesn't really warrant our really attention. We just sit here and basically kind of ignore him. But as he approached the, where they were sitting, there was something about his presence, his aura, his luminosity, his clarity, his happiness, his love, something shown out for them enough that against their will of trying to ignore and stay seated, they all five stood up and welcomed him to in a, kind of, in a, respect, in a somewhat respectful way. However, they called him uh, our friend because they'd been his friend for many years. And the Buddha said, you know, you shouldn't call me friend anymore. (laughs) 
And um, and he explained to them that he was now a fully enlightened being, and um, that he, they should listen to him. <laughs> and it, you know, it's, they say it's very hard to be a prophet in your own family. <laughs> so so they just said, you know, you know, they had been respectful enough. They stood up and greeted him respectfully, gave him a seat, and and I think they washed his feet. So something about his presence was very compelling, but not enough to overcome their view of him as a slacker. And so, you know, so they said, you're a slacker, you know, what, what can you tell us? And he, for, for three times he said, you, should, you know, I'm now enlightened and a liberated one, and I would like to teach you. And uh, they said, you know, forget it, slacker. And then he said, you've known me for a long time. Have I ever made this claim before? That I'm liberated, fully awakened? And they said, no. We've known you for a long time and you're always completely honest. Your word, we could always trust it. And you had the highest integrity of almost anyone we knew. And you've never said it before. I guess we'll listen. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt. And then since they'd been practicing asceticism and they lived in a very black and white world of asceticism versus indulging in the world it's like one or the other so that's why they saw the Buddha as indulging in the world by just drinking a little bit of rice porridge he had to overcome this notion of the division between this world denial and world affirmation and this is a very useful division to heal because many of us in the West in California especially are really into world affirmation maybe we're not into sense indulging in the way that the ascetics thought the Buddha was going engaged in Maybe we don't go and kind of engage in every possible sensual, hedonistic pleasure. But there's still a very strong current of world affirmation. And we want our Buddhism to be world-affirming, many of us. And there's certain messages in Buddhism that can be interpreted, or sometimes we are, kind of world-denying or world-negating. And I'm not going to have anything to do with that Buddhism, thank you. So the first thing the Buddha had to do was to kind of say, wait a minute, these two categories of world-denying and world-affirming are not the categories that I want to live by. And what I want to teach you is what I'm going to call the middle way. The middle way, the alternative way, that maybe looks like it's between the two, but maybe it's simply kind of... so between them, it doesn't play the game. It's not interested in whether we're going to affirm the world or deny the world. It's just not not part of what's what's useful for purposes of awakening to come to those kind of conclusions. You can come to those conclusions for yourself, but don't confuse that with the spiritual life. So he said, there's this middle way. And the middle way is then defined as the Eightfold Path. And then he taught the Four Noble Truths. That there is suffering. Suffering occurs. There's a cause for suffering in thirst. He used the word thirst, a very kind of physical direct kind of powerful word, thirst. There's a cause of suffering and thirst. There's a possibility of bringing the cause of suffering to an end. And there's the path for doing that. It's not easy to do that, so he offered the Buddha's, you know, eight-step program, (laughs) which has been developed a little bit over the years. He added four more. And the Four Noble Truths so he taught that to these five ascetics. And one of them got it. He was fully awakened hearing that. And you might think it's quite remarkable. Anybody could hear a simple discourse and become awakened. But remember, this is a person who engaged in many, many years of spiritual practice and had very few attachments. He wasn't interested in sensual pleasure anymore. He wasn't interested in, in many of the things we normally get consumed by, thirsting for, attached to, we want to have it. Many of the ways in which we identify a self, you know, probably to work through a lot of things. And there wasn't much that he was holding on to anymore, but there must have been something. And when the Buddha pointed to the possibility of taking responsibility for the way in which you cause suffering for yourself, and he saw where, he, where, where, he, where his responsibility lay in thirsting, he could let go of it. The uh, venerable, the venerable um, 
I'm John Travis. <laughs> In one of the retreats I taught recently, they gave a beautiful example of um, of um, if you want to try to grasp fire, a big fire in front of you, and you put your hand to grasp it, you, you can't really grasp fire with your hands. It's kind of not a kind of substance you can hold on to like that. It's kind of, you know, where does it go when you grab it, right? But in, in grasping for fire, you certainly burn yourself. It hurts. And many, many, often our desires are like that. We burn ourselves in, in the desiring. But, uh, you might want to blame the fire for burning yourself. That fire did it. In a sense, physically, chemically, whatever, the physical, me- mechanical way in which you got burned is caused by the fire. Is the fire responsible? In a sense, you can say, yeah, the fire is responsible. If you go you know, to the emergency ward and you want to explain what caused the fire, say, well, I, somehow my hand got in the fire and <laughs> the, fire, the fire did it. Or you explain how, you know, your parents, because of what they did or whatever, you know, so there's a, <laughs> we're very easy, it's very, very common strategy to assign blame. But really, it was the intention, the desire to grab the fire that you had in you, the impulse, which karmically, psychologically, psychically, is the cause for the burning. Physically, it's the fire, of course, but the psychic, the karmic cause, is that impulse and the desire to put your, reach your hand in there. And the Buddha is saying, you have to take some responsibility for that psychic impulse, that desire, that thirsting, that desire that goes into the fire. Some years ago, I was driving a little bit faster than I should. <laughs> <laughs> really, just a little bit. And, um, and I think I was going someplace important, like to go teach the Dharma. <laughs> about slowing down and being mindful <laughs> and um, I was going to um, I came to a stop sign it was a four way stop sign and I stopped and there was a car coming perpendicular to me and I thought for sure it would stop the stop sign and so I, I went it was, I had the right away and everything and I went and the person ran the stop sign and we missed each other by a hair you know I, I had enough presence of mind to kind of stop and back off or put the brakes on or something. We just just missed each other. And I reflected afterwards that legal, if we had an accident at that moment, legally, the legal cause and responsibility would have been in the hands of the person who ran the stop sign. And I could have jumped out of the car and with all great justification blamed them for what they'd done. Karmically, psychically, the responsibility lay the karmic responsibility, or what's, maybe say differently, maybe the responsibility, responsibility is too much. But from a karmic point of view, or a psychic point of view, my own inner point of view, my own inner life, the responsibility, can't get finding that word again, the responsibility is in my thirsting to be in a hurry to get somewhere. That maybe kept me a little bit less mindful and a little less present to have avoided the accident. And that habit formation of being in a hurry that impulse to kind of be blinded by desire, I have to take responsibility for. And without taking responsibility for that, without working on that and seeing that and turning the mirror back to see that, there's no spiritual life. It's not to deny who's legally responsible for the accident by any means, the conditions of the world. But from the possibility of our own freedom, we have to learn to turn the awareness around to where the thirsting occurs, where the desiring occurs, and it happens within us. And the great challenge that the Buddha taught is that our suffering arises from thirsting, from the kind of drivenness, neediness, compulsive behavior that takes its form in desire and aversion, hate, fear, and many different things. And it's very easy and sometimes quite appropriate to assign some of the blame for our suffering externally and to deal with it in appropriate ways. But at some point in practice, it's absolutely imperative to turn that awareness around and see what is our responsibility, what is our karmic involvement, what is our impulse, what's the thirsting, what's the defensiveness, what's the 
holding on that occurs within us. And then, if we can see that clearly enough, then it's possible to let go of that. And letting go of that, we become free, we become awake. So, that was his first sermon of the Buddha. One of the five got it. The next day, the Buddha continued his teachings for the benefit of the other four. And this time, very quickly, he stopped the the teaching form of just expounding the truth. He didn't just kind of say, this is how it is. What he did was he backed off from that, stopped doing that, and rather he entered into a dialogue with the other four, questioning them, drawing them out, finding out what they knew and what their understanding was, and leading them along to come to their own conclusion, in a sense. And I'm very happy that somehow the Buddha was able to take that step also, so soon. Because sometimes when you're, you know, have some great realization, it takes a while to relax. <laughs> <laughs> as our families know <laughs> so um, so what he taught next was the Anatta Lakana Sutta which is the discourse on the characteristic of not self so he, didn't, he, he kept it much simpler than the first discourse suffering, the cause, the end but now he brought in this issue of self of Atta. And this has perplexed Westerners ever since. And part of the reason it perplexes us is that we have a lot of different definitions and currents and ideas of what self is in the West. It's a very loaded word. It's kind of like a word like God. You know, and you know, a lot of people will agree that, you know, does God exist? Oh, yes. Fine. But then you start you know, finding out what they actually believe when they say when they believe in God, and you find actually there's a wide range of what they might believe in, and it's not necessarily the same at all. The word self has very much the same way. There's many different. If you talk to, there's a range of different psych- schools of psychotherapy, and they have different definitions of self. There's different popular definitions of self. There's different um, philosophical definitions of self, and all kinds of different definitions, and so. When people use the word self without defining their terms, they could be agreeing or disagreeing unknowingly because they might be using different or similar definitions without knowing. So we have to ask, what did the Buddha, how did the Buddha define self? Well, he didn't use the word self. It's an English word. He didn't speak English. <laughs> and it might have been an unfortunate translation into English the word Atta. The early um, the Victorian English who tra- first translated the Buddhist discourses into English uh, shows the word soul. And it might have been a better word to have kept. But soul got kind of out of fashion until Thomas More came around. <laughs> and so... And so... <laughs> and so... I'm serious. (laughs) But soul avoids some of the complicated problems of, you know, know, for example, reading your books in psychotherapy and they say, well, you need a strong self. And the Buddhists say, you need a no-self. And so, where where do the two meet? seems like they don't meet anywhere. And so, you have to choose between where your loyalty lies with your therapist or with your meditation teacher. <laughs> so well, how did the Buddha define the word self? Uh, I'm hoping this make it making this easier, right? more, less complicated. But there's a uh, problem with me. In that first discourse, the second discourse he gave on the discourse on not-self, he implicitly, not so explicitly, but implicitly defined what he meant by self which was very much the current popular religious-spiritual definition of Atta, of Atman, of soul, of self, that the spiritual people of his time were dealing with. 
And he defined, the Buddhist definition of self, or soul, is that which has some ability to control your, either your body, your feelings, your thoughts, your impulses, your intentions, your consciousness, your perceptions. It has some, some, whatever we can identify as being part of our psychophysical being. That which is the soul, or the atta, has to be able to control it, to have authority over it, sovereignty over it. So then he, the Buddha asked the other four, do you have absolute sovereignty, control, over your body? Can you will and keep it in whatever way you want? Certainly you could have spent your well-earned money, instead of coming to retreats like this, you could have gone and gotten plastic surgery and had some control over it for a short while. <laughs> you can only do it so far. Ultimately, you can't, no one says, I think, that there's a, you have ultimate control over your body and you can will it to be well or make it better or whatever, just like that. You can certainly change the conditions and have kind of temporary effect of various kinds, but you don't have absolute sovereignty over your body. So he said, do you have absolute sovereignty over your feelings. Do you? Go through your teenage years and ask yourself again. Remember. <laughs> or go through menopause. <laughs> My wife went through a medical-induced menopause and she, um, temporary, and she said, this is really amazing. These thoughts aren't mine. <laughs> 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 so, uh, and then he asked, do you have control over your perceptions? Or <laughs> Not too well. <laughs> our perceptions, you know, are what they are. You know, we, we can't have absolute control over our perceptions. Do we have control of our thoughts, our impulses, our intentions, our motivations? Maybe you can say you have the control in the sense that you could not act on them if you don't want some of your impulses. But you don't really have control over your mind and what it thinks about and the impulses that arise. Maybe you can not act on them. So they said no. And he asked, do you have control over consciousness, over your consciousness? Can you will your consciousness to do whatever it wants, get into whatever shape it wants? They said no. Then he, so one of the definitions for atta, for atman, is, is you have to, it has to be able to control something. And if it can't control anything in your psychophysical being, there's a problem. Sometimes it doesn't really qualify as atman. And then he said... Your psychophysical experience of yourself, anything you can point to as being any way formed to who I am, my psychophysical being, my beingness. My... Is any of it permanent? And they said, no, not, nothing, that, nothing that I can point to as belonging to myself or a psychophysical being has any lasting permanence. You can't find or see that permanence. There is no permanence. So that was the second definition of Atman, that which has lasting, per- permanent existence. The third thing the Buddha said is, are there any elements in your psychophysical being which are permanently blissful? No. And that was the third definition of what is an Atman, is it has to be blissful. So these are three characteristics of Atman is it has sovereignty, is able to control something in some absolute way. It has to be permanent and it has to be blissful. And in ancient India, people were looking for that Atman. If they could find that Atman, they had that nature, they thought they could be liberated. And the Buddha did not deny that search. He did not say that that was the wrong thing to do. He asked, rather, 
is there anything in your psychophysical experience, your psychophysical being, anything that you can find within yourself, your feelings, whatever, that can in any way or form qualify as an Atman that way? And when they thought about it, they said no. And since these were very developed practitioners, who had very little attachment left to things, they realized that their enchantment, their intoxication, with trying to find the self in their body, in their feelings, in their thoughts, and consciousness, was misguided. There's many ways in which we're intoxicated, we're enchanted, we're thirsting, we're driving for something which can make us happy. And at some point in practice, we have to give up the intoxication, give up the enchantment, and let that impulse for intoxication, desire for intoxication or enchantment, fade away, relax, and soften. And these four monks realized that this, they no longer identified, held on to anything in their psychophysical being as worthy of this last attachment they were attached to, which is search for the self, for the Atman. And that was enough for those remaining four to be liberated. All the Buddha said in this discourse, basically, was your psychophysical, in your psychophysical being, all the ways in which we can experience it, you won't, and none of that qualifies as a soul or as an Atman, as a self, as a permanent, abiding, in control self. The Buddha did not in this discourse say, there is no self. How many of you think the Buddha taught, there is no self? That's all? <laughs> so, the rest of you should give the rest of the talk then. <laughs> so, the rest of you know, huh? The, um, the, um, there's only one place in all the volumes of the Buddha's discourses that are preserved where someone actually asked the Buddha, is there no self? And the Buddha refused to answer the question. The one chance, he had, in print, he had a chance to kind of, <laughs> to, to say, you know, yes, there is no self. He declined. He was also asked at the same time, is there a self? And he declined to answer the question. <coughs> so then, now we're trying to make it simpler for you. So first of all, now it's simpler because you don't have to be concerned about finding the no-self or realizing the no-self because the no-self doesn't exist. It's not like a goal for Buddhists. <laughs> this is the Buddha speaking, more or less. There is a case when an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, that means all of us, <laughs> does not discern what ideas, what things, are fit for attention, or what ideas are unfit for attention. So here the Buddha is saying, it's actually it's useful to know what, it's, what, it's, what, it's, what, it's, what is helpful to pay attention to. If you love if you spend a lot of time, anything that you give a lot of attention to, in some way begins shaping you and your personality. If you have a certain level of greed for money, and you spend a lot of time day trading and night trading, and you're always thinking about it, and you go to investment clubs, and you're thinking, talk to all your friends about it, and you're on the phone all the time, and it's always driven by this greed. Your attention, that kind of attention, is shaping who you become. And you need to be a little bit careful about where you put your attention. It's not meant as denial or repression. It's actually a kind of wise thing. How do you want to shape yourself? If you spend a lot of time harping on all the complaints you have about other people, <coughs> that feeds or shapes a certain character. If you spend a lot of time focusing on a particular way in yourself, in a kind of narcissistic way, for example, it, it has a way, sometimes a way of reinforcing that narcissism. It shapes the character. Some things are unfit for attention, and some things are fit for attention. This being so, 
He does not attend to ideas fit for attention and intends instead to ideas unfit for attention. This is how he or she attends inappropriately. So this is a list of the inappropriate things to pay attention to. <laughs> was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I in the past? <laughs> will I be in the future? Will I not be in the future? What will I be in the future? How will I be in the future? Having been what? What will I be in the future? Or else, he or she is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present <laughs> and inappropriately looks at, uh, uh, chases the questions, am I? Am I not? Where am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? Now, I mean, the first list of things, you can kind of do away with those easily enough, right? But am I? That's a good question. Unless you've already come to a conclusion. Or am I not? What am I? You wanted to know that ever since you got out of high school, right? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? Where has it being come from? I mean, it's a great question in psychoanalysis, right? Where has it come from? Spend a lot of time looking at that. Or if you spend, if you don't spend time with your analyst, maybe you spend time with your coach, and your coach is interested in the future. Where are you bound? You're getting somewhere. It's only John and I who are interested in the present. <laughs> I mean, that's what you use a meditation teacher for. Analyst for the past, and coach for the future, and meditation for the present. <laughs> As this person inappropriately attends in this way, one of six kinds of views arises in him. The view, the opinion, the story, the belief. The view, I have a self, arises in him or her as true and established. Or the story arises, I have no self, arises as true and established. Or the view, it is precisely because of self that I perceive self. Or the view, it is precisely because of self that I perceive not-self. <laughs> or the view, it is precisely because of not-self that I perceive self. Or the view, it is precisely because of not-self that I perceive self, arises in him as true and established. Or else he has a view like this. This very self of mine, the knower that is aware, here and now, to the ripening of good and bad actions, is the self of mine that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. That's a long time. This very self of mine that is aware of these experiences is, is eternal. This is a quite a gamut. I think that most philosophical views of self can probably be massaged into some of these categories. And the Buddha is saying that if you attend inappropriately, you'll end up making up stories like this about what the self is. And then, so, is that innocent? Is that a fine thing to do? He says, rather, he says, this is called a thicket of views, a wilderness of stories, a contortion of beliefs, a rithering of views, a fetter of views. Bound by a fetter of views, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair, he is not freed from stress, I say, not freed from suffering. Here, what the Buddha is saying is the person has gone out into the plains to take a photograph of freedom and is completely lost in the wilderness of story-making about what they're looking for and what they're looking for maybe doesn't exist. It just lends itself to a lot of confusion. Tie yourself in knots 
am I? Do I exist? Do I not exist? How do I not exist? How do I exist? If I exist, then who is my true self? How do I know my true self? All these kinds of questions the Buddha is suggesting actually gets in the way of this very simple thing of you taking responsibility for how you thirst, how you grasp, how you cling. Then the Buddha goes on to say, the well-taught noble disciple discerns what ideas are fit for attention and what ideas are unfit for attention. This being so, he or she does not attend to ideas unfit for attention and attends instead to ideas fit for attention. He or she attends appropriately thus. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the ending of suffering. And this is the way leading to the ending of suffering. He or she attends thus, in this way, three fetters are abandoned. Three ways in which we abound or held constricted. The identity view, doubt, and grasping at precepts and practices. The identity view is the view that you can use something, your thoughts, your feelings, your history, your biography, your projects, your accomplishments, anything at all, as something which can reliably define who you are. <coughs> and many of you have defined yourself just today in many ways. <coughs> if you say, if you're struggling, struggling because of my pain, you define yourself by your pain. With the first experience of, of real deep insight, you're no longer inclined to, to latch onto it, to cling to it, to solidify, this is my pain. You're not inclined to take anything as being the, de- the defining definition of who you are. So the watering hole for the Buddha, where you sit and watch and wait, is the watering hole of suffering. You pay attention to where suffering occurs. And everything you need to know, everything's appropriate that you need to know, will come your way. And you'll see where the grasping is. Or you realize, I don't need to know that. What you need to know or don't need to know for the sake of liberation becomes clear if you stand at that watering hole of suffering. And you look at where is the clinging here. So, for example, if you're driven by the need to know who you are in some absolute, you know, way, or, or, or driven to kind of become something, some better self or perfect self or whatever. The Buddha is saying, don't look at the definition of self or the creation of self, whether you do exist or don't exist. Turn the attention around and look at the fear, the drivenness, the desire, the ambition, the clinging that's part of that project. That's where the suffering is. And once you let go of that clinging to self, you can still go ahead and make whatever self you want if you're still still so inclined but you're no longer suffering because of it. This is a very important insight for uh, this teaching of anatta, of not-self, that was taught to the four ascetics. Because part of the... the, In the West, I believe, in very great generalization, there's the idea of a perfect God. And humans are kind of imperfect, and we kind of make our way as we can. But, you know, God is really perfect. So the perfection is transcendental in a sense. In Indian religions, in the time of the Buddha, they, weren't, they were looking for the perfect human, human perfection. And the Buddha pulled the rug from underneath that attempt to define oneself or to try to create oneself as being perfect. So the Buddha was negating not the self, but any attempt to use our psychophysical experience, psychophysical being, as a definition of self. We're not going to define ourselves by our face, by how we look, by how we feel, by our life experience, by what we're going to become. We can't, you know, in a light way, it's okay to let those things be, you know, be part of who we are and our identity in a sort of way. But we're not going to define ourselves, hold on to that as this is who I am. Now, one of the reasons why the teaching of Anatta perplexes many people in the West is because, as I said, there are different definitions of self. 
And I think it's very useful to have some sense of the different kinds of self that we focus on. Because one very important kind of self is what's, what can be called the relational self. The self that gets born in relationship to others and to our life experience. And this is every child that grows up is developing a relational self. A sense of how they impact others, how others impact them. Um, other people mirror them in all kinds of ways. And they get a sense of who they are in the community, who they are in relationship to their family members, and who they are in all kinds of ways. And this is a very important thing. Sometimes, it, sometimes, usually, it goes to some degree a little bit off this project of creating a relational self. Simple thing, when I was in seventh grade, I took an art class, and I was drawing my hand. And the teacher came over to me and said, you have no artistic ability. I didn't suffer one bit by that. I didn't never occur to me that I did or didn't. I didn't mind being told that, but she was the authority, so this became my definition. I'm, I don't have any artistic ability. That's the way it is. Great. <laughs> it didn't even occur to me it was a bad thing. It's just, okay. So I, ca- I just carried with me this notion that I had no artistic ability. So when I got to college and my roommate was a born-again artist, <laughs> it took some coaxing from him to get me to start drawing. And after a while, I started drawing. First doodles in the, instead of taking notes in class. And he liked my doodles. And then he kind of nudged me along. And pretty soon before I knew it, I was taking art classes. I even became an art major so I could get into the painting classes. That wasn't, wasn't really honest, but it was the way to get in. <laughs> and then the magic day happened where I decided to define myself as an artist. And the amazing thing, that was the day that I stopped doing art. As soon as, because then I had, I had to do art in order to fulfill the identity, the definition. And I just couldn't find myself. I wasn't capable of doing it for that reason. And I lost for many years track of the of touch with that impulse just to kind of express myself through painting or drawing because I did this definition thing. So there's all kinds of ways in which we define ourselves. It's kind of a def- it's kind of a grasping. It's kind of a thirsting. We want to be something. And fundamentally, I think we want to be safe. I think it's very frightening for it to be a a baby, a young child, who's so unable to take care of themselves and so dependent on their family and other adults and whatever to take care of almost every possible need they have without without that other person to take care of them. How are they going to be safe? And so they look towards others Children, as they grow up, they look towards the parents and adults for the safety and love and whatever. And when, as they get that reflected back or not get reflected back, they get ideas about what this world is about, what relationships are about, what the relational self is about. And there's a wide range of definitions people come up with. And the amazing thing is that how much people's philosophy about life can sometimes be traced to the particular dynamics of their childhood. So the philosophy is not universal. It really expresses some, you know, whether they felt safe or not safe, or seen or not seen, or as children. So I'm a, I'm a new parent, relatively, three-year-old kid. And I feel that I wasn't really prepared for this role of being a parent. But I feel like one of the, one of the strongest lessons I've had about how to parent has come from being a meditation teacher and talking to people on interviews on retreat. Over and over again, I've encountered people who talk about the suffering that continues into sometimes into late into life based on what happened to them as a child. And one of the most common things I hear is some variety of they weren't seen as children. That somehow they weren't seen. Maybe they weren't loved, they weren't made to feel, feel that it was safe in this world, or that they counted. Remember one person coming and telling me that his mother would, in a loving way, his mother loved him, he felt, would say, you know, you know, 
you're a really sweet boy, but kind of dumb-witted. So that became his definition of himself, that he had to kind of then struggle with, and there was no, no truth to that. He was dumb-witted, but that being, so that, you know, not being seen in some ways. And so the relational self, so, we, and then, so then we want to be safe. And so we try to find some ways to define ourselves, some way to orient ourselves to others and family and people by having some understanding of who we are, the relational self, how we are in relationship to other people. And it's completely normal and healthy to do that. But it, it can go askew and create tremendous amount of problems for people and get locked in for a long time. We see certain feelings of ourselves, certain emotions, are unacceptable because if we show that side of ourselves our father is going to beat us and get angry or if we show that side of us our mother is going to lose control one, once one person came said that her mother her his mother um, was really harried by being a mother of two young kids and really upset when one day when the kids did something a little bit off, a little bit made her upset. And she said, I'm leaving. And she packed her bag, the suitcase, and walked out the door, slammed the door, and walked down the street with her suitcases leaving. And the kids stand, stood there in the window, four or five-year-old kids, thinking that they were never going to see their mother again. She went, around, she went around the block. But the kids didn't know that. They didn't have a clue. And that kind of, then that defines so much. And they, the thirsting, that grasping, the thirsters, the grasping for security, grasping for whatever, ratchet right there. Oh, if I ever do that again, if I ever show my anger, show my playfulness, show my mischievous to my mother, it's not safe. You latch on. If I show my love, it's not safe. If I show my whatever, it's not safe. You know. Certain parts of us can get shoved into the basement. You know, you see. Ed Brown tells a story. Some people moved into a big house. Many, many stories. And they bought a young puppy to live in the house with them. And at first they were very happy to have the puppy. But the puppy started to not behave so well. Started to be a little bit mischievous and eat the plants, run after the cat a little bit too much, and ate, ate the father's newspaper one day. And so they really got upset with the dog, so they put it in the basement. And the dog started howling, yelling. And they said, well, that dog is just wild. We can't take care of that dog. So they moved to the second floor so they wouldn't hear it. And the dog was left there in the dark, hungry, living on rats and mice down there for, for many years. And then they remembered, oh, wait, didn't we once have a dog? So they went and opened up the basement door. And what do you think they saw? Probably a very frightened, very angry dog. So they could, of course, just close the door again. But how do you bring back to life? How do you tame? How do you bring back into normalcy such a dog? People who, you know, if you find yourself tremendously frightened or angry, or if you find yourself, you know, really, really sad. If that was a four or five-year-old girl or boy in your presence, how would you relate to that frightened or angry or sad child? You'd have to be very patient. It takes a while to let that dog relax, let that child relax. But be very accepting and loving. If you're judgmental of the dog or the child or whatever, it's like pushing them back in the basement. 
one of the things we've learned with our son, he, he has a lot of fear. Kind of, maybe he's a fear type kind of person. I don't want to define him yet. But, <laughs> but he has a lot of, a lot of, he has, you know, regularly has a lot of fear of things. And what we've learned is it doesn't work to explain to him that he doesn't have to be afraid. Kind of like, that kind of actually belittles the fear. Like he's afraid of, you know, going into one of the rooms in our house by himself. Oh, there's nothing there, there's no monsters, there's nothing there, you don't have to worry. What seems to work is to hold him and go into the room, completely matter-of-fact, and not show any fear for ourselves. We're not afraid. We don't engage him in the fear, we don't deny it, but we hold him to give him security, and then we carry him in to the room. So it sometimes takes a long time that all this stuff comes up on retreat. As we begin letting go of our thirsting, our clinging, it's like taking the lid off of our life. And sometimes all this stuff comes up. And we're not like these five ascetics who spent years and years of spiritual practice ready to hear the pristine teachings and poop. For many of us, the struggles we've had with our relational self are so fundamental and paramount to what we have to do that we have to make room for that and let that surface and show itself. Open the door to the basement. And then to meet it with kindness and love, acceptance with seeing. The way that children need to be seen, it's, it's like, I really understand now why some people will say that seeing and love are the same thing. And as adults, this is what we do to ourselves. We bring seeing to ourselves. Just to see and see and see and see and see and see endlessly. And we use the Four Noble Truths to notice when you stop seeing, when you interrupt the flow of awareness, when you latch onto something, you cling to something, or you resist it, you pull away. What we're trying to do here in retreat is to maintain a steady stream of noticing. Noticing that doesn't stop for anything. And you'll notice as you sit here that you're, you're quite fine you're with your breath, sensation in your body, everything is fine. You notice it and all these things. And the awareness kind of flows nicely in the present moment somewhat. And then this memory arises of what someone did to you a week ago, a year ago, or a lifetime ago. And then you notice five minutes later, you know, that, that the mindfulness stopped. It froze in its tracks when that arose. We, what we're trying to do is to... And, and, and freezing is the clinging, the thirsting, the holding, the grasping. What we're trying to do is to keep the mindfulness flowing so we can keep the seeing happening continuously. As soon as we try to understand or analyze or try to resist or make it into something, or try to manipulate it or belittle it or push it away or make it better, judge it, it's a way of stopping mindfulness, stopping the seeing, the love. And it's a real act of love to maintain steady, unswervingly, moment after moment, what's happening now, what's happening now. Don't let anything take you off being that seeing, 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 being that parent who's just comforting, being there present. Relational self is a very important element. We have, to, we have to take it into account. We have to understand it and respect it and allow these things to arise. Now, to use the relational drive for defining ourself relational, relationally as a way in which the mindfulness stops. Even though we have all this need, don't let any need be a cause for the mindfulness to stop, the love, the constant knowing to stop. So we use the Four Noble Truths to notice where we grasp, where we thirst. Such an important thing to make that simpler. Let go. So we just keep going to the next moment, to the next moment, to the next moment. If you understand the principle, is that you want to keep it, let go enough so that the mindfulness keeps going to the next moment, to the next moment. That's all the letting go we need to do. You don't need to let go of your feelings, your thoughts, or anything. You have to let go of your mindfulness so it can flow to the next moment. It can stop anywhere. And you might notice the same thing over and over and over again for a long time. 
But there's a difference between mindfulness staying fresh and flowing and being present on that one thing and mindfulness being frozen on that one thing. But we can get stuck in the relational self. And it's a kind of, if you're only trying to figure out your life by the relational self, getting just the right relational self. I was 20. I lived in a farm in Tennessee. I lived in a farm in Norway, a small dairy farm. And I was left alone for a week to take care of my five girlfriends, who I lovingly, lovingly milked every day. <laughs> and I'd never been alone before in my life for that long of a time. And I wasn't intentionally wanting to be alone or trying to be alone, just found myself suddenly alone in this very rural place. And the only person I saw those seven days was um, in a distance I saw the mail, mailman walking up the road. And I felt this kind of intimacy, a kind of aware, crystal awareness of myself, my thoughts, my moods, the world around me. The world came alive. It kind of sparkled. And I felt a kind of well-being that I'd never experienced in my life before. When my friends came back, the owners of the farm, all the old relational concerns came back. My anxiety, my fear, my, it all came back. But that week was so powerful for me that it became a guiding light. And the, my, my, one of my spiritual tasks after that was how to be alone with others. It would have been very easy to, to choose the route of, okay, I'm just going to be a hermit. But I said, no, how to be alone with others. How to be alone with others means how to find a way of being at home in ourselves, being at peace with ourselves, being here without relying on the relational self. Without depend. So first of all, it requires us knowing there's more, that there's more to life than the relational self. Not to discount it, to belittle it. But there's something more. There's something other. And what I like to propose is that that the non-relational self, the independent self, that which can be at home and at peace, but that needs nothing, is like a larger container that can hold the relational self. And what we're ultimately trying to find in Buddhism, Buddhist practice, is not a better relational self, but rather that larger peace, that larger sense of well-being that doesn't depend on the relational self being a particular way or not, being a better self or a worse self or whatever. In order to find that independence, it's the same practice of maintaining the mindfulness moment by moment, not letting anything freeze the mindfulness. Just what we're aware of now, what I'm aware of now, what I'm aware of now. And the mindfulness kind of flows, it comes alive, it, comes, it gets into kind of a, kind of a, a stream it begins flowing, it gets bigger and bigger. And as you do that, you'll find that, that the mindfulness itself shares in, is part of, is the independent self, or is the, that independent presence that can hold everything and be at peace. Discover that peace. Discover that ability to not depend on anything, to not need anything. Discover that responsibility that lets you turn the attention back to yourself and see where is the holding and clinging. And your practice will be a lot easier. Don't need to look for the true self. Don't need to look for a better self. Don't even need to look at fixing yourself. Just notice where awareness contracts and clings, where awareness gets channeled by thirst, by resistance, by fear. And you notice those places, see them clearly, love them, hold them in awareness like you would perhaps a small girl, a small boy so that the awareness can keep seeing moment by moment, moment by moment. And in that doing, it becomes simpler and simpler 
the non-relational self. Is the ultimate simplicity of being. May each of you have a small glimpse, at least, of the utmost simplicity of being, which is your birthright. So, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.